listening to West of Middle East, a podcast about Middle Eastern changemakers living in the West. I'm your host, Niaz Kastravi. In season two, we feature changemakers working in and around the field of education. Be it through traditional academia, technology, the arts, advocacy, or movement building. Each episode shines a spotlight on changemakers doing everything from the ordinary to the extraordinary, humanizing their triumphs and struggles and offering a more real narrative of who they are to counter the often sensationalized and misconceived portrayals of these communities in mainstream media. West of Middle East is produced by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Last year, the biggest rise in hate crimes tracked by the FBI was attributed to those against Muslims. In just one year, hateful actions against Muslims went up 16%. In the same year, we witnessed a tug-of-war as rights organizations and advocacy groups fought the American government in their efforts to implement a travel ban targeting mostly residents of majority Muslim countries. I sit down with Pakistani-American Zahra Bilou, the executive director of the San Francisco Bay Area Office of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE. Zahra is a true civil rights attorney and community organizer at the forefront of the fight to protect the rights of Muslims in America. I talk with her about her path, her advocacy, and what she sees as critical actions we should all be taking to stand up for justice and the inherent dignity of all people. We start by talking about what drives her to do her work. I am driven to do the work that I do by, you know, a variety of factors. My faith drives me to to take care of the people around me and to advocate for justice. My American identity calls me to the values and rights that we promise in the Constitution, but have long not made available for many communities. And then it would be dishonest for me to say that I'm not directly impacted by the work that I do. When we talk about advocating against things like the Muslim ban or racial profiling or hate crimes, in many ways I'm working to protect myself and my family. But I believe that in doing that, by extension, I protect all Americans. Because if it can happen to me today, it can happen to anyone tomorrow. Zahra shares her experience speaking at the 2017 Women's March in Washington, D.C., one of the largest marches in U.S. history, organized in protest to the election of Donald Trump, bringing together millions of people across the country to stand up for an array of human and civil rights issues. I had actually bought my airplane tickets to go to D.C. more than six months prior to the inauguration. I think it was even before the primary election in California. I had committed that if... Bernie Sanders, who I was excited about at that time, won, I would go and rally outside of his inauguration to ensure that he was reminded of the promises he made on the campaign trail. And if anyone that I liked less than him won, that I would go and protest to make sure that they knew that we were still paying attention. 
So when I heard that the Women's March was coming together, I was really excited about a different take on what was going on and an opportunity to build with so many different people to say we're here, we're paying attention, and we care. And then came the invitation to speak at the march. And I remember maybe two nights before saying to my friend Linda, who was one of the national co-chairs, what does one say to 250,000 people in three minutes? And she says, oh, Zahra, it's going to be a lot more people than that. And they estimate that it was somewhere between 750,000 and a million people. And so my words around, we are not afraid, we will not be silenced, were really a reflection of what was happening in that moment. That despite the election of someone who is accused of sexual assault, who is a, a misogynist, a racist, an Islamophobe, and a homophobe, that millions of people across the country were going to come out and continue coming out to advocate for something better. We don't want to make America great again because the past that he attempts to remind us of was not great, right? We saw this recently with the election in Alabama with then-candidate Roy Moore, who fortunately lost, talking about America was great when families were united, despite the fact that there was slavery at that time. And so when I think of being unafraid and unsilenced, I think about the America that we want to build. And I saw that when I looked out into the crowd at the Women's March. Zahra talks about the way that recent events have brought together various organizations working on different issues who historically may not have worked together. We have definitely seen a lot of conversations in the past few years among activists, organizations, leaders, and even impacted community members who are talking about how different issues are related. So, for example, in the Muslim community, whenever CARE goes out to talk about the Muslim ban, I try to make sure that my staff and I are clear about connecting the dots between the reality that the agency which enforces the Muslim ban at airports is Customs and Border Protection. Customs and Border Protection is the same agency that targets people coming across the U.S.-Mexico border and subjects them to physical abuse, cavity searches, and other dehumanizing practices. And we make that connection both because we want to be clear that what the Muslim community is experiencing is not exceptional or unique, but also that if we win one fight but not the other, that in the end we're all still at risk. And so we're seeing more and more of that around police brutality and the connection between Black Lives Matter and FBI surveillance. We're seeing that around things like the GOP tax deal that was proposed, as well as sort of access to health care and how poor people in America continue to get poorer. There are very few silver linings to the current administration, but one of them is that they have made plain and clear that they are attacking all of our communities. And so it's less about sustained change and more about effective activism. It's that we are stronger when we're working together. Thinking about that customs and border protection example, if you come across the U.S.-Mexico border and then you take an international trip and you land at SFO six months later, the agents in both of those places are sharing information. They're sharing strategies. They're sharing any notes that they have on your file. So we know that they are working together. Our challenge is to out-organize them. Zahra and Care were amongst the many involved in directly responding to the needs of the community after the Muslim ban went into effect. 
she sees what happened in the aftermath of the ban as a sign to be hopeful about this movement and people's dedication to it. At San Francisco International Airport, they said that the weekend of the Muslim ban broke BART transit records for how many people came to the airport to say, we oppose the Muslim ban and we will continue to fight. That doesn't even include the people who drove, because if you were coming from San Jose like I was, there is no BART route that goes that way. You drove and you parked there. What we saw that weekend at San Francisco International, but also at airports across the country, was white allies, lawyers from all sorts of career paths showing up with handmade signs that said free legal help. Though they'd never worked on these issues, they were willing to use their law degrees and their privilege to help people. We had musicians, we had grassroots organizers, we had family members of impacted people, there were elected officials, there were media professionals who spent the whole weekend there telling this story. There were labor um, labor organizers, so Service Employees International Union, for example, is one that turned out its members. There were immigrants' rights activists. And then there were the people who brought the food or sent the food, right? So there... I have not been to a more diverse protest in in a very long time. I think one of the limitations about protesting at the airport, though, that is worth noting because it's important for us to remember our privilege, even in these circumstances, is we had to advise people who are undocumented or non-citizens to be careful about coming to the airport to protest. Because if federal authorities arrested them or something like that happened, then that would cause them more harm than the good that they could do at the protest. But aside from that one, you know, limitation, and that limitation was sort of, you know, a suggestion put out with love and consideration for all of the ways in which people are targeted, everyone was there. Faith communities, right? Muslim members of the community. And people made friends. They sat together. They sang together. They performed music together. They they prayed together. And, you know, as someone who really enjoys food, I'll say that they they ate together, right? They, they shared airport food together saying, we're not leaving until this, until this is resolved. And she is heartened by the diversity of who showed up at the airports to help. I remember asking my friends and colleagues the evening of the Women's March, how do we take this moment and make it a movement, right? What does it take for people to continue to come out and rally? A week later, I got my answer. It takes a white supremacist president who's not shy about his intentions. The ban was signed on a Friday afternoon, really late in the afternoon. And that evening, we we worried about which flights would be coming in, what would be going on. And the phones at the care office started to ring off the hook. People are saying, I have family members in transit. What do we do? Or can I get on this plane? What will it mean? And for folks who may or may not remember, the first ban was really, you know, for lack of better words, stupidly put together. Like it was poorly written. It was, they hadn't thought through the consequences of how they had done it. So the first ban impacted green card holders on the first day, whereas the others did not. And about a day later, they said, actually, never mind on the green card holders. It 
They hadn't actually thought about the rollout for how Customs and Border Protection agents would enforce it. They hadn't thought about the fact that making it effective immediately would result in people being trapped at airports. So the second and third bans had a later effective date. So, for example, the second ban was signed on March 6th, and it wasn't effective till March 16th. So you couldn't get on a plane if you were impacted by the ban, right? Because there was this lead time. With the first ban, you got on a plane to come here as, you know, an Iranian national with a visitor visa. And when you landed, you landed in a different America than the one you thought you were coming to see just six or 12 hours ago. Later that night, on the first night that it went into effect, we got calls from our partners who were working at JFK. And they said, we want to tell you how it's playing out here because the first flights landed at JFK, flights will continue to come in elsewhere across the country. And we heard about green card holders who were handcuffed and detained. We heard about visa holders who were actually sent back. And so we knew that when those flights landed at SFO, San Francisco International Airport, that it would be bad. And so there was a, a multi-pronged approach at San Francisco International Airport. The one that we were most involved with was helping people who were stuck. They had landed and they weren't being released. We had at least one family that was detained for over 30 hours. No access to a phone, barely speaks English. Their family is on the other side trying to figure out what's going on. There were pregnant women who were detained. There were people who were afraid about what would happen. Then there were the protesters who said, we are not leaving until everyone is released. And that was an effort that was a combination of both organic mobilization from people who said, we care, what can we do? As well as a number of grassroots organizations in the Bay Area who said, let's leverage this moment and make it a movement. Let's rally people to come to the airports. The third strategy there was amplifying all of these stories, making sure that reporters were at the airport and connected to the right people to talk to, making sure that elected officials were at the airport and were also talking to impacted people so that they could then think of creative solutions to push back against the ban. It really was a team effort and one that I am so grateful to have been a part of because I think it's the kind of story that we will tell our grandkids One of the lesser-known parts of the stories with the airports is that as protesters started to get tired and were thinking, well, we're already paying $30-plus for parking and food at airports is notoriously bad and expensive, we're going to leave because we're tired and most protests only last a few hours. And as that started to happen, the protest organizers said, don't leave, tell your friends to send you food. And so the food started to pour in. People were having DoorDash and Uber Eats and dropping off food curbside. But there was salad and pizza and donuts and cookies and fruit. It was like, I I describe it as, I, I have family that celebrates Christmas. And so I describe it as like, a Christmas feast times times 10 um, for Muslims who, you know, fast in Ramadan and then have the fast breaking meal at the end of the day. It was like that, but bigger. No one went hungry at the airport for like five days. The food just kept pouring in and there were options, right? It wasn't just pizza and soda. And so that was how people who weren't even at the protests were were contributing. But it really was a moment that became a movement where people said, what that man in the White House is doing runs counter to our values. And we will stand here and put our bodies on the line and feed each other and shut down the airports and chant until everyone that is trapped is released. 
and she views the struggles of the Muslim community as linked to the experiences of other communities in the U.S. What I'll say about comparing struggles is that in the Muslim community and in the work that we do in the Muslim community, we're very careful to be clear that many communities, which at times intersect with our community, have suffered far more. So Islamophobia today pales in comparison to when we look at anti-black racism, right? That anti-black racism is at the foundation of this country. There was a slave trade. They wrote into the Constitution that black people were three-fifths of a person. And even today, black people are disproportionately targeted when it comes to policing in the prison industrial complex. So I'm careful to not say that the Muslim struggle is worse than other struggles, right? Or that other struggles have ended and it's just our turn now. Because neither of those is true. Our struggle pales in comparison to these other struggles. And other struggles haven't ended. Ours just joins sort of the ongoing systemic targeting of different communities. And then the last thing that we try to make really clear is that a third of the Muslim community is black. Members of the Muslim community are LGBT-identifying. Members of the Muslim community are undocumented. And so when we think about these struggles, they're not even separate, that they touch us in, in more ways than one. And for certain members of our community, they're not singly targeted, they're doubly or triply targeted. In 2017, CARE joined a group of plaintiffs in one of the first lawsuits against the Muslim ban, an executive order signed by Donald Trump that aims to limit visitors from several majority Muslim countries. In December 2015, then-candidate Trump promised a outright, absolute, something along those lines, ban on Muslims coming into the United States. And he repeated variations of that statement at least a dozen times during the campaign. When he was elected, we were worried about hate crimes in the streets. Aziz Ansari famously said in his Saturday Night Live monologue the week after the election that this election emboldened people who were lowercase KKK to become all caps KKK. It emboldened racists to go out into the streets and commit hate crimes in a way that we hadn't seen before. But come January 2017, it wasn't just haters in the streets. It was now haters in the White House, right, who had every intention of, you know, some would say painting the White House white again. And so the entire week after the inauguration, we watched daily to see when the Muslim ban would come, right? And we would wake up early. and Is it coming today? Is it coming today? Is it coming today? And on January 27th, This president, our 45th president, signed what was the first of three Muslim bans. We knew right away that we would need to challenge it. And challenge isn't even the right word. We knew right away that we would need to fight it. And we would need to fight it with everything that we had. Because if he could get away with doing it this one time, what stops a Muslim registry or Muslim camps or Muslim deportations, right? These are all things, by the way, that America has done to other communities. It was just 75 years ago that we had sent Japanese Americans to concentration camps on U.S. soil. So we knew what was at stake. So we went to the airports to protest and to help people who were stuck. 
We took to the airwaves to work with our friends and partners in the media to help amplify these stories to our fellow Americans who may or may not have known. We started to do Know Your Rights presentations. Right that same night that he signed the first ban, we were at the mosques doing Know Your Rights presentations. And we went to the courthouse. And so CARE filed one of what were dozens of lawsuits against the ban. Our our lawsuit was famously named Sarsour v. Trump because there again, my friend and sister Linda Sarsour was the lead plaintiff. But it brought together several dozen U.S. citizens who said that this is an assault on our First Amendment rights, that the president is targeting us because we are we are Muslim. It became the first of two lawsuits that CARE filed, and all of them are slowly moving through the courts. But the reason that I highlight that we used a variety of strategies is because the courts don't always do what we need them to do. And so we needed to make clear that though we would be filing this lawsuit, and yes, we would be personally suing a sitting president, that we had to have hope in people as much as we had hope in process. And so the protests worked, the Know Your Rights workshops worked, the partnerships worked, and all of it is an ongoing fight. Since that first ban, there have been two more bans issued. There's been a refugee ban, which was separated from the Muslim bans and issued. The cap on refugee um, numbers has been lowered to the lowest level it's been in decades. Extreme vetting, which is another thing that happens, making it more and more difficult for people from Muslim-majority countries to get visas uh, by asking them questions about their social media, their travel, their family, in ways that are incredibly invasive, has, has moved forward. And so the Muslim ban and the lawsuits around it have gotten a lot of attention. But we're clear that what we need is sustained activism and a diversity of methods to truly push back and hopefully win this fight. Sarsour v. Trump um, is in the courts in Virginia, and it's gone through several revisions. It was a lawsuit targeting the first ban. And so one of the things that's happened is lawsuits targeting the first ban were, you know, sort of put aside while lawsuits targeting the second ban were put forward. And then there were lawsuits targeting the third ban. And so we've actually been focusing our energy on a a different care lawsuit, which challenged the third ban and specifically looked at people from Yemen and Syria and a couple of other places who were being separated from their families as, as a result of the ban. So that third lawsuit, so Sarsour v. Trump is, you know, is in the lower courts in, in Virginia and is pending um, various amendments. Our more recent lawsuit is in the Fourth Circuit. It was argued in December of 2017, and it is one of the lawsuits that may influence whether or not the Supreme Court takes up the Muslim ban question again. Zahra worries about the separation of church and state in the U.S., but not in the way that some might think. The question of separation of church and state always strikes me as interesting because I come to my work of civil rights and advocacy as a person of faith, driven by my faith, but also with the understanding that both my faith and the American legal system prevent me from forcing my faith on anyone else. And so what I worry about when I see what is happening in many parts of America today is just that. 
many right-wing anti-Muslim activists will use the scare tactic of Islam being forced down Americans' throats or Islamic law taking over American courts. But I would say that the bigger threat is Christian theology being forced down many of our throats, impacting our healthcare choices, impacting who people believe can get elected. And, you know, interestingly, as we look at things like tax deals, the question of whether or not, like, churches can be used as as bully pulpits for for politics. For me, I will make decisions about my personal life, about my faith, based on my faith. And I will do work to protect other people driven by my faith. But I'm clear that it is my faith and my faith alone. And what I worry about is that for many Americans in the South, in this White House administration, and, you know, really across the country, there's this idea that their faith should be our faith too. That I should not have access to contraceptives because they don't believe that that's okay. That I should, you know, marry only as they decree because that's what they believe about marriage. And that, you know, people in places of faith should be able to use their bully pulpits and their leverage and their and their mega churches or mosques or temples to support politicians, right? And it's all bad. It's all bad. My faith is my faith, and it's only my faith. It's no one else's. Will I talk about it? Will we have a conversation about it? Will it impact the decisions I make for my life? Yes. But it's when I start to shove my faith down someone else's throat that I know, or not even that, 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 I mean, that's like, that's so far gone. It's when I start to say you can or can't make certain life decisions because my faith says your life should be this way that we're in dangerous territory. Though not often portrayed in popular media in that way, the Muslim community in America is very diverse and eclectic with a multitude of cultural and racial backgrounds. And over the years, there is increased collaboration between different Muslim communities, as well as among people of color and immigrant communities in general. Zahra believes in the power of education, not just in the educational setting. She sees participation and advocacy as an educational tool. When I started college, uh, one of the freshman orientations we're required to go to, our then late president, Dr. Robert Maxson, said to us, you will learn as much outside the classroom as you do inside the classroom. And I carried those words with me every time I ditched class to go to a protest. <laughs> every time I prioritized getting something done for one of my student organizations, over the homework that needed to be done that night. And to be clear, I'm not encouraging slacking off in college. I graduated with honors. But I understood and appreciated that there are certain things you can only learn through storytelling, through firsthand experience, through participation, and you know, in the streets, over in desks and chairs. And so when I think of the work that CARE does around advocacy and particularly our work with the media and community outreach, I see that as, as educational work. 
I meet people who don't know that they have a right to remain silent and the right to an attorney if they're confronted by law enforcement. As an American Muslim lawyer, those rights are ones that I sometimes take for granted because they're so deeply ingrained in me. But our work with the media helps raise awareness about constitutional values that protect all Americans. I sometimes meet Americans who don't realize how bad hate crimes are for many members of the Muslim community or the LGBT community or undocumented individuals. Telling the story of a hate crime on the evening news helps educate our fellow Americans about what their neighbors are experiencing. There are certain things that people can learn in classrooms, but there are as many other things that people need to learn in the streets through their interaction with their neighbors, through watching the evening news, and really, you know, in short, through getting out of their comfort zones. Zahra has faced numerous challenges and struggles along the course of her path, from financial pressures in law school to the difficulty of select legal courses to often dealing with the most painful issues that her community faces. I hated law school so much. And it wasn't anything that the law school did so much as I often felt like a fish out of water there. For at least one of the years I was there, I was the only visible Muslim. I only have one other lawyer in, in my family, which is different for many of the students at the law school. Money was tight because law school was expensive and I came from a middle middle class family. I was away from home and really wasn't sure what was going on. My mom had cancer the first year that I was in in law school. I'm sorry. And she she survived. She's a two-time cancer survivor. She's 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 brave and and healthy, but being away when all of that is going on is challenging. I wondered if I was, you know, somewhat off the life path because the cultural norm was that I'd be married by the time I was in law school and and I wasn't. And then I knew that I came to law school to help people. And so when I had to sit through like corporate law classes, I wasn't sure if I was on the right path or if I could do what I was doing in in the right way. And to the credit of my law school, UC Hastings was great and had a great environment and encouraged social justice and is in a location, you know, in the poorest part of San Francisco and probably of the Bay Area where it was hard to escape social justice if you were a student there. But Probably my first challenge or my biggest challenge on the path then was just being in law school and being miserable. My friends remember that I drove home to Los Angeles after my first semester, and I was like, I'm not sure if I'm coming back. And I made it through because they said, if you if you don't come back, we're coming to get you. <laughs> and I thought I'd spare them the drive. Since then, you know, the challenge is are that we see people getting hurt every day. That not a day goes by that someone isn't calling me or the care office and saying the FBI is at my door or my child is being bullied or I'm afraid of what's going on. Sometimes the most heartbreaking cases aren't even actual cases. They're people whose mental health issues have been triggered by the environment that we're in. And so they think that they're being followed, but they're not. They think that someone is out to get them, but the reality is that the Islamophobia has pushed them over the edge, and what they need is a counselor or therapy, and so I can't help them. 
And then the hardest is sometimes just wondering if we could do more, right? Is this realization that there isn't always a time for a break or there isn't always time for rest, that sitting on the sidelines isn't an option in this moment in history. I asked Sahra what she would say to a young Muslim girl or boy out there who may be feeling angry and hopeless. I think anger can be a really healthy emotion if leveraged correctly. People, you know, converse sometimes about what it takes to do this work. It requires compassion and patience and resilience, but it also requires some just straight-out outrage. And so when I think of young people who are angry, I would urge them to take that emotion and put it to work, to get involved with groups like CARE or Empower Change or Black Lives Matter or anyone in their local community who is doing work. In many cases, it requires that we recognize our privilege for folks who are U.S. citizens or who may speak English or who have access to an education. We're actually able to do a lot more than some of our brothers and sisters who are targeted. And so the question that I pose to myself every day is, what am I doing with my privilege, right, to, to pay it forward, to build a better community for other people? When I talk about hating law school, I started law school in 2006. So much has changed since then, including just the reality that the legal profession has become more and more diverse. And so if people are struggling through this profession, through other professions, or they're just wondering about what they can do, I would urge them to reach out to people who are doing work that they admire and ask for mentorship, ask for guidance, um, sometimes ask for friendship, right? Because just having someone that you can call and cry with about everything that's bad in the world is good because those are also the people that you will laugh and build and organize with. Zahra reflects on what she sees coming down the pike in 2018 and beyond. 2017 was absurd. When I look back at everything that happened in that year, I can't believe it was just one year. And though there's a lot of negative that happened, there's also a lot of positive that happened. There was incredible diversity at the Women's March. There was a broad-based pushback against the Muslim ban. There were people from all walks of life advocating for the protection for, for dreamers. There was increased awareness around police killings, and even the police officer in South Carolina who's been sentenced to decades in prison finally lock him up and throw away the key. And so 2018 for me isn't new or old, or it's a continuation I think that the midterm elections will present an opportunity for more cross-community building. There is a sense of urgency, I think, on both sides of, of these issues. The right wing understands that America is waking up and is not okay with what happened in 2016. But those of us who oppose Trump also know that we have to work really hard because hundreds of thousands of people are voting for candidates that Trump supported. And so I think that it won't be a peak or a finalization or an end. It will be increased momentum because people are now seeing front and center what's at stake. And that leaves me excited about all of the new ways that we will continue to fight against this administration, but really fight to build the America that we all want to live in. 
I asked Zahra, why should people care about the stories of those from the Middle East or that region of the world, especially if they have no direct ties to it? There are selfless and selfish reasons to care. The selfless reason is because it is the right thing to do. I believe that people were placed on this earth to work for each other, to protect each other, to be in community together. So I push myself to care about issues that I don't see as necessarily or directly impacting me. That is the selfless reason. I don't gain any personal benefit from it. I'm just driven by what is the right thing to do. What is the just thing to do? What is my obligation here? But people are really busy, and their attention is pulled in a lot of directions. And sometimes selflessness isn't enough to move us to action. And so there needs to be a selfish call also. And to that, I, you know, I often think of the reality that growing up in an immigrant home, we did not see, for example, the war on drugs as our problem because we were not African-American or Latino, and that's who was being targeted. My parents, as practicing Muslims, did not think that their kids would ever do drugs, so we weren't concerned with the criminalization of, of drug use. And we didn't question government authority or government intrusions on our civil liberties. Racial profiling wasn't even like on our radar as, as a problem. Every single one of the practices that law enforcement used to target African Americans and Latinos, who of course, by the way, include Muslims, during the war on drugs, came back to haunt my family and every family that looked like us or had our experience during the war on terror. African Americans were drug dealers until proven innocent. Arab Americans and Pakistanis are terrorists until proven innocent when asking state authorities or people who would target our communities. And so there is a selfless reason, and it is that it is the right thing to do, that we should have cared in the 80s because that was what we should do as Americans. That was what we should do as Muslims because our neighbors shouldn't be oppressed either. But the selfish reason is that whatever we let them do to any other community today, they can do to our community tomorrow. We see that. The reason we're so afraid of Japan, of internment camps in the United States is because they did it to Japanese Americans and the Supreme Court let them. The reason we worry about GPS surveillance of Arabs and South Asians today is because they did it and continue to do it to African Americans and Latinos. The reason they're able to detain and question Arabs and South Asians at airports across the country today is because they continue to do it at land borders between the U.S. and Mexico. And so if selflessness does not move someone to action, I would say that the reason to care about what happens to people from the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia, both in those countries as we support many times corrupt governments over there, as well as in the United States when we talk about the treatment of immigrant families or the children of immigrants or racial profiling or any of those things is because what they can do to those countries and what they can do to those people, what we let them do, they could turn around and do to others tomorrow. Our stories, our challenges, and our struggles are connected. The recent uptick in Islamophobia and hate crimes and the backlash against refugees is something that has been simmering throughout the history of the United States, more intensely impacting different people at different times. 
In America, racism is like an illness that's not only woven into the country's history, but very much still plaguing the culture in this nation and the institutions that govern us. And to uproot it, we must be unafraid and united. And it can only be uprooted if we stand together, because there's no such thing as immunity from it. You've been listening to West of Middle East. You can hear more episodes about changemakers from the Middle East diaspora at westofmiddleeast.org or check us out on iTunes. If you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. This podcast is created by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Our engineer is Rick McRae of Conscious Studios. Music is composed by Loga Ramin Torquion and Azam Ali. And I'm your host, Niaz Kasravi. If you want to share your thoughts about this podcast or have ideas for future seasons, email us at comments at westofmiddleeast.org. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.